welcome to Secondary Rules for the weekend of Saturday, 6 August, the Athens on the Merlongalo edition. I'm Joshua Neal. And I'm Ryan Goss. We are brought to you, as always, by the ANU Law School, with new episodes out every Saturday. Follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, as in each episode of Secondary Rules, we pick something that piqued our interest from Ryan's public law class this week and an intriguing question from my legal theory class this week. And we bounce between them to see what we can learn from each other about law and maybe about the world beyond the law. And don't forget that you can find some links for further readings in our show notes. That's right. And we'll start off by saying a huge thank you, Joshua, to everyone who listened last week and who sent us great feedback. The engagement with the podcast was way beyond anything we were hoping for. So thank you to everyone who's listening and has been recommending to the friends, whether you're in our classes at the moment or not. We're thrilled to have you listening. But let's get started. This week in our first segment, we'll look at an ancient Greek tragedy. And then after the break in our second segment, we'll think about federalism. And we might just touch on the Prime Minister's speech last weekend about a voice in the Constitution as well. Let's start in our first segment with the Oresteia. Now, Joshua, my first question is, have I said Oresteia correctly? <laughs> no, as, as far as you know. As far as Greek pronunciation <laughs> is concerned, I think we will both have to guess our way through this episode. Did you study classics at high school? I, I, did, I, I did a couple of years of Latin, but my, I have no pronunciation of any of these things. The beauty of studying a dead language is the pronunciation doesn't particularly matter. So we can make up the pronunciation. So we can make up the pronunciation. Right. No one could contradict us. And email us if we get it wrong. So the, the, the first segment today is all about the Oresteia, this, this uh, Athenian uh, series of dramas, series of tragedies, uh, and the place of law in ancient Athens to some extent, but certainly the place of law in this piece of literature. So again, my question to you, Joshua, is a similar one that I asked last week. In a, in a law course, in a podcast about law, why are we reading ancient Greek plays and thinking about ancient Greek plays? So one way to think about it is to ask the question, how did law emerge? We could ask that question historically and try to look for historical uh, evidence of the emergence of law in actual societies. Or we could approach it in a more literary fashion by looking at ancient literature. And last week, we looked at uh, the book of Genesis. And this week, I think it would be good to turn from Jerusalem to Athens. For after all, our intellectual tradition is both Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian. And we looked at the Judeo-Christian side of things last week. And this week, I think we should turn to the Greco-Roman part of our intellectual inheritance. Well, that sounds good. And there'll be a link, by the way, to, to relevant things to read about this series of plays in the show notes. Um, when we think about the place of law in literature, in a play or in a book, or even in a passage of the Bible, it, we're interested in that because it reflects the stories that people tell about law at the time. And it must, it must give us some insight into their thinking, into what the place of law was in their imaginations and in their real everyday lives. Is that right? Yeah, I think the key word there is imagination. Yeah. So if we are investigating the matter historically, we are not quite concerned with the imagination, we are concerned with what actually happened. In literature, in looking at a Greek tragedy, for example, we are not so much concerned with the historical fact of the matter, but we are concerned with the imagination. How would ancient people have imagined law and thereby told a story about the emergence of law in the Greek place as well as in the book of Genesis. 
and that might give us clues about the place of law in their society back then, but more to the point, it tells us about their emotions, their feelings about law, their thinking about law. Is that the idea? That's right. And we inherit those imaginations through our inheritance of a particular philosophical tradition. Yep. And what we inherit is not the technical details. After all, we are no longer living under the ancient Athenian law. What we inherit is precisely that imagination, is, which is very difficult to undo because it is deeply buried in our cultural subconscious. Okay, so let's get to this Oresteia. The Oresteia is a series of plays. I gather at least one of them was lost, but we have three of the plays that still uh, are still with us that we can still read. Um, and I think they, if I've understood it correctly, they, they pick up the story after the Siege of Troy. Uh, and for more information on that, you can see the Brad Pitt film on the, same t- <laughs> on the same subject. But they pick up the story after the Siege of Troy. Is that right? That's right. And it begins really with a series of killings before we can we come to the, the climax of the story where we get the emergence of law, we, we encounter a very bloody sequence of events. And, and uh, uh, wives killing husbands, sons killing mothers, this sort of thing. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty messy, messy That's effect. right. And this is the time where I will show off my Greek pronunciation. Okay, go for it. So it begins with Agamemnon sacrificing his daughter, Ephigenia. How, how is my Greek pronunciation? Don't, don't let me stop you. Okay. Um, so there is the first killing. It was uh, portrayed as a sacrificial act where the king, Agamemnon, sacrificed his daughter in exchange for fair winds to sail to Troy. And upon his return... Uh, this is where his wife uh, takes revenge on him and his uh, mistress, I guess, or his, par- his new partner for the original killing of the daughter. That's right, that's right. And so there is now the second killing, the wife killing the husband. So the queen Clytemnestra killing King Agamemnon. And then there's a gap of time and their son comes back, the son of the murdered dad. And then he goes after his mom who murdered his dad and kills her, is that right? That's right, that's right. And the Furies, which are goddesses of revenge, say, were hunting down Orestes for having killed his mother. Okay, so these Furies are in the play, they are a, a character in the play, as it were, but they are also, they're, they're, they're a, a metaphorical presence as well. That's right, so they are characters in the play and they are driven by the passion for revenge. Yes, okay, good. So now we have a series of killings. How do we break the cycle of revenge? That's the big question, right? And that uh, now we come to the climax of the play. And, we, and, we, and Law is the hero here. Well, Law in the form of, uh, is it, I think it's Apollo tasks the goddess Athena, is that right? With the, with the task of sorting this all out. A trial. A trial. A trial is the answer, right? The, uh, the play portrays the trial, which resorts to the language of Law as the answer to the breaking of a cycle of violence and revenge and blood killings. But here is the big question. Is law really the, un- the only available answer to the breaking of that cycle of revenge and blood killings? Could we not imagine outside the play are the ways by which that cycle can be broken? So in, when we think and use the word imagine again there, when we think about this, my reading of this is that at least in part, the purpose of the play is to tell Athenians and Greeks the story of how they ended up with law, how they ended up with courts, why that's important and why they shouldn't be casual or flippant about that. 
But there could have been another path, is what you're saying. That's right. There could have been another path. It, it put, the, the story portrays as if the resort to law is the only way out of killing. And we see that running through a whole intellectual tradition in the West. Where we'll, in Hobbes, for example, Hobbes portrays the law and the state as the only way where we can avoid a war of all against all. And that feeds into this um, Greek tragedy model of, of how we could solve the problem of killing. So help me out here. You, are you hinting that there is another alternative that we should be thinking about or that the Greeks should have been thinking about? This, I think another alternative could be, have been forgiveness. At different points, at each step of the way, the character could have forgiven the other character. The queen could have forgiven her husband for killing their daughter. After all, the king killed the daughter in order for, to advance the goal of the nation in sailing to Troy. The son could have forgiven his mother for killing her husband. After all, the mother was merely taking revenge on a very sad and tragic situation. Their daughter just died. Now the son could have tried to understand what the mother did and forgiven the mother. At every single step of the way, forgiveness is an option that each of the character could have taken. And so this story suggests, does it, that that forgiveness is not a viable uh, a, a viable problem-solving technique at a societal level as a, as a rock-solid, safe guarantee of solving societal problems. That it, it may be very well and good, but it's not, not, not something you can rely on. That's right. And that's where I think the Judeo-Christian tradition provides an important corrective to the Greco-Roman tradition, where Jerusalem corrects Athens. That is, the value of forgiveness comes out front and center in the Judeo-Christian tradition, that forgiveness is the answer and not law. And that's where we see the fracturing of our intellectual inheritance. We are now presented with two competing values, justice pursued through law in Oresteia, or forgiveness, where we give up the demands of justice. Now, let's come back to forgiveness, but I think we may have got ahead of ourselves in the story and our enthusiasm a little bit, right. because we, we had gotten, Apollo had appointed Athena as a judge, essentially, to sort out this, uh, the, the, the final killing and to try and cut this uh, series of revenge killings off. What happens in that trial? Because when I, uh, you know, I'm someone who've, who's written about uh, due process and fair trial rights, I'm someone who thinks about the importance of judges and independent courts in the context of public law. All of this sounds very natural to me. It all seems like a very natural solution. What, what happens next? What's the resolution that comes through the court? So there was a hung jury. The jury split. And Athena cast the deciding vote and voted to acquit. Upon the acquittal of Orestes, the Furies were furious, as their name implies. And Athena's way of dealing with the Furies is to incorporate the Furies into the legal system and not cast them out. How does she incorporate them into the legal system? By rebranding them as the gracious ones. That <laughs> it's, excellent, it's excellent marketing. It's marketing. It? It's a marketing tool. But one way to think about that rebranding is that retribution, revenge of which the Furies were the embodiment of, now have to be channeled through the legal system. You get your revenge in and through the legal system. There is no more self-help. 
In this picture, it is not forgiveness. It is not giving up of retribution. It is saying, we will give you retribution, but you will get that through the mechanism of a trial and law. Law will take the revenge for you. And that is how the story ends. Right? Now we have revenge, the passion being institutionalized in the trial process. And retribution still is a key component of our criminal justice system. At least on some accounts. So, so, the, so the version of it then is uh, that you may not get the result you like every time, but that it is in all of our interests that we subscribe to this system of law and justice in this form so that we do not find all of ourselves in rolling blood feuds all the time, essentially. If you are feeling revengeful, as most of us occasionally feels, there are two ways you could deal with that, or two ways a society could deal with that. First way is to say, we will carry out the revenge for you, you don't do it yourself. A second way is to say that perhaps you ought to give up that desire for revenge. Now, to do the former is justice, to do the latter is forgiveness. And so w- uh, we can't chart the full history of Western thought over the last 2,000 years in this podcast. More well, we will try to. More, more is the pity. <laughs> um, at, at what point does, or what are some of the, the, the key battles or the key obstacles in attempting to reconcile these two traditions? Or are they simply irreconcilable? They're simply, uh, my view is that they're simply irreconcilable. It's a trade-off. There are many good things in the world. We can't have them all. If justice is valuable. Forgiveness is valuable. And sometimes you have to choose. Do we want justice or do we want forgiveness? So one might imagine that this is not an imagination. This is a real life example post-apartheid South Africa. Yeah. They have two options. They could have, a, they could have a, tr- a series of trials to try those who are complicit in the apartheid regime, or they could have a truth and reconciliation commission. They chose the truth and reconciliation commission and the term reconciliation points towards forgiveness. That decision is controversial because they are giving up the demand for justice and victims of the apartheid regime are justifiably grieved, aggrieved by that decision. Where is my justice? But they have chosen forgiveness. Is there a way to get both? Probably not. And that is the real tragedy. The real tragedy is that we want both justice and forgiveness, but sometimes we just can't have both and we have to choose. And particularly, not just South Africa, but South Africa is a great example, but in those, when we think of it with a public law hat on, in those transitional societies moving from one legal regime to the next, very often these questions arise and very often there is a sociological or political battle to try and encourage people to accept where there are trials or where there is uh, a justice system addressing some of these things to accept those results even when they don't like them all or even they don't accept the outcomes of every single one. Yeah, so I think that, that's the choice that every, let's say, post-conflict society has to address because it is difficult to sort out what has happened in the past few decades uh, during the course of conflict. One way is we have long-running trials to sort it out. Or we draw a line under the sand and we say, enough and we wipe the slate clean and we move on and when uh today when i I was in uh, athens a few years ago now before the pandemic and you can stand on the top of the acropolis amidst all those great buildings and see the areopagus which is the place where in the play at least where this trial took place and you can also see the place where the first democratic assembly was held it's all very moving what you what you see is a rocky outcrop or a bit of rock embedded in the ground but it's all very moving to see those see those places 
the ongoing influence of something like the Oresteia is both literary and also in the form of the politics we, we see from ancient Athens is very influential in early United States history, for example, and various other places around the world, isn't it? Including in Australia. Including in Australia. Hence the title of this uh, episode. <laughs> Athens on the Molongolo here in Canberra. <laughs> well, uh, Joshua, that's, a, that's probably a good note to uh, end our discussion of, of ancient Athens and the Oresteia. We'll make sure that in the show notes we'll have a link to both the, the, some of the plays, or at least the final play, and some other reading for people who are interested in it. Should we take a break there? There's a good time. See you in a minute. Welcome back. In the second half of uh, today's show, we will talk about federalism. De Tocqueville, the Frenchman who wrote Democracy in America, once said that thanks to federalism, the United States is, and I quote, as happy and as free as a small people and as glorious and as strong as a great nation. Is he right, Ryan? Well, de Tocqueville is writing in the 1830s or so, uh, and he's writing about the strengths and weaknesses of the American Constitution and American federalism. He perhaps, uh, his, some of his insights are weakened a little bit by the fact that a generation later, the United States broke down into a bloody civil war uh, and, and I- 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 driven in part by the weaknesses in the US federal system and the abhorrence of slavery, among other things, of course. But I think what de Tocqueville is getting at is that when any society, whether it's the United States or Australia, chooses a federal system of government, they are trying to balance two things, maybe two irreconcilable things, as we saw in the first half of this episode. They're trying to balance a need for a national government, a national parliament that can do things, in Australia's case, on a continental scale, can look to the rest of the world, with a desire for local autonomy, local identity, local power as well. And that's driven, I think, by some version, or at least maybe driven by some version of what de Tocqueville said in the quote you read, a desire to maintain the happiness and freedom you get in a smaller country or a smaller society and have some of the, what he describes as the glory and strength of the big nation. So let's uh, step back just slightly. What is federalism? So I think federalism is a a way of organising a society, a country, in which you have two levels of government. You have a national government, what we in Australia will sometimes call the federal government, and you have local governments, what we in Australia would call state governments, but in other places around the world they're called provincial governments, other things. And you divide power between those two levels of government. You divvy up the responsibilities of government. You say, national, federal government, these are your jobs. State governments, these are your jobs. And it allows the different states, the different component elements, to take different policy views on things, to pass different laws, to solve local problems in different ways. If the parliament in Queensland, the government of Queensland, think that a particular solution should be solved in one way, they can solve it differently to the government and the parliament of South Australia and Adelaide, and differently to how the national parliament might deal with it if it was not a federal system. The other thing to remember here, I think, as as you know, Joshua, is very often in Australia we use national and federal as though they mean the same thing. We say the national government, the federal government it's easy to lose sight of the fact that they don't necessarily mean the same thing. New Zealand, for example, has a national government, national parliament, but it's not a federal parliament. So we, we, when we were drafting our constitution in Australia, we made the decision that we wanted a federal national constitution. So would it be right to say that every nation state has a national government 
only nation states that have adopted the federal structure would have a federal government, which is the national government. Yeah, that's right. That's helpful. Yeah. So now, why would a state opt for the federal structure? I mean, to a person like me, it seems to suggest that there are some fundamental differences between the, the different constituent parts of that new nation state that they can't reconcile and they can't just unite and therefore they opt for a compromise solution, which is a federal structure. So for example, if I am right, it would suggest that the Victorians are a different group of people than the Queenslanders. Now, are there that much difference between them? Yeah, yeah. I would say, of course, that, that Queenslanders are a, a different, a more insightful, more intelligent, uh, uh, more, more, more engaged. If you can um, say so if yourself. If I say so myself. But, but I think de Tocqueville had something to say about that, didn't he? I think de Tocqueville, writing in the United States context, was pretty sceptical at the notion that there were particularly great societal differences between the different component parts of the United States. I think in Australia's case, we're talking about a historical decision. We're talking about a decision made in the late 1800s. That's the federal system we still find ourselves with in the early, uh, the early 2000s. So 120 years ago, 130 years ago, there were, I think, maybe at least two factors. One was there were differences between what were then the colonies, what were now the states. Some were more uh, industrialised, some were more trading societies, other were more focused on primary industries, and they, so they had different priorities. Some were more centralised in one big city, some were more spread out amongst a series of smaller cities, and so that brought different challenges and different opportunities for them. But I think there's also just a raw politics element to this. You were trying to bring together six somewhat independent colonies, all like happened to be located here on the Australian continent, and in order to sell them on this idea, in order to bring them together, you said to their politicians at the time in the 1800s, but also to their people, don't worry, you won't get subsumed within this broader country. You'll, you'll still have an identity. You'll still be Queenslanders. You'll still be Tasmanians. You'll still be Western Australians. You'll still be able to decide what happens in your local community, at least to some extent. We'll just leave a lot of the national issues to the national government. Yeah, but th there is a very fine line here, right? Because if they are too dissimilar... They can't even be brought together in a federal structure, right? So then they need to have some similarity. But if they're homogenous, then why not just unite them in one state? So there must be sufficient differences to justify a federal structure, but not entirely uh, dissimilar to the point that you can't even form a nation state. And there are multiple federations, including former uh, uh, colonies of the British uh, Commonwealth or the British Empire, that did form federations over the 20th century that just broke down quite quickly for the, some of the reasons you're describing, not just British Commonwealth and Brit British Empire territories, but other federations around the world that were uh, geographically disparate, society, so disparate in terms of their society or their demographics or in other ways, and they just didn't work. They broke down for one reason or another. Yeah. And we can think about the European Union today. Right. What states to admit to the European Union comes back to the question of how similar slash dissimilar those n new states seeking admission to the European Union are from the existing states within the Union. Now, but coming back to Australia, yeah. if you were to be writing the constitution for Australia today, which I know that you dream about doing, <laughs> would you recommend a federal structure? If you could start from a clean slate, it's up to you now, as the philosopher king, to decide what's the best model for Australia. Would you recommend a federal structure? I'll just adjust my crown. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I think it would be very unlikely that if we were sitting down today, we would adopt a federal structure that looks like the one that we adopted in the late 1800s. I think 
uh, for a population of our size, for a continent of our size, clearly there may well be a need for some degree of local autonomy, some degree of power below the level of a national government. We can think about what that might mean. But I think a federal system in which government is duplicated in so many ways, legislatures are duplicated in so many ways, I think it is unlikely that the people of Australia would choose that in the 2020s. People are very parochial, people are proud of their state or their territory and where they're from and might be concerned about a loss of identity there and might be concerned that they might not be able to cheer for their favourite football team or cricket team or netball team if the state borders were to fall. I think all of that would continue. Uh, but I think the, the general view would probably be, if we were starting today, you would have a larger national parliament, uh, a slightly differently organised national parliament, and you might collapse the states into some sort of regional councils or something like that. So there's another way we can accommodate uh, local attachments and local concerns without adopting a federal structure. We can think about the, a state in Australia, not, not the nation state, let's say the state of Victoria, there have there are local governments within the state of Victoria. Now that there is no federa federation within a federation, Vic the state of Victoria is not itself a federal state. So we can have local government without adopting the federal structure. And and that brings out something really helpful and important. I think Joshua, the states in Australia, and in all federations, have some degree of autonomy. They have some degree of independence when it comes to their internal affairs. No matter how much the Prime Minister of Australia might disagree with what a state is doing, if that is, state is operating within its area of autonomy, within its area of independence, then the federal government, the federal parliament will find it very difficult to interfere with that. And that's different to, for example, a local council or uh, a local government in, in other unitary, non-federal states around the world. So you can imagine a world in which you had a more powerful national government that was able to intervene and squash local governments that were doing slightly mad things or slightly th things that the federal government, didn't, the national government didn't like. And we see that at work in recent years with the border, state border closures in response to COVID. Now, is that a mad thing that the states have done? Well, I think we saw uh, multiple states, Queensland and WA were high profile, but at various points, South Australia, Tasmania, other states had border closures or border restrictions, making it very difficult, uh, as everyone knows, to enter across the border. Uh, and made it hard for people to see family and friends and so on. And I think at the time, there were a lot of stories saying, oh, this is the death of the Federation. This is the death of the unified Australia. This isn't what, why do we bother federating if we were going to have this sort of thing? I mean, to my mind, there is a world in which this is exactly what federalism looks like. It is saying, well, the states have responsibility for public health. We can query around the edges and argue about that. But let's say the states have responsibility for public health. If they wish to solve problems in particular ways in their state, that's what federalism is all about. If we had wanted a country in which the same rules applied all throughout the country all the time, in which the national government could overrule what local governments were doing, we wouldn't have chosen a federal system. We did. Maybe that was a mistake. Maybe we wouldn't choose it today. But when we have a federal system, that is the essence of that is saying states retain local autonomy and local independence. And so when governments of both political persuasions, by the way, close their borders, they were doing that. They were doing what federalism was there for in a particularly extreme sort of way, but that's what they were doing. And the state border closures, on that view, it's not a failure of federal federalism, but a triumph. Well, yeah, it could well be seen as a triumph of federal federalism. A failure of national unity, some might say, a failure of uh, the process of coming together as a country, but not a failure of federalism. As you were saying before, a, a country can have many virtues, one of which might be federalism. Um, this is a, could well be seen as a, as a triumph for federalism. It's funny, when we used to teach and talk about federalism in public law, you had to work to explain that 
100 years ago, 120 years ago, there were border checks at every, every time you cross from Victoria into New South Wales or Queensland to New South Wales, you might have to pay taxes. A former student even sent in a photo of one of those tax booths, helpfully, <laughs> hello if you're listening, so that I could use that in, in my slides in class. It doesn't require any imagination anymore. It doesn't require any leap of faith to understand that. People understand very clearly what that looks like. And we also hear increasing rhetoric from state governments where, which says that their primary interest is to protect the citizens of their state. The government of Queensland is there to protect Queenslanders and the government of Western Australia is there to protect Western Australians. Now, that kind of, let's say, parochialization of state politics, would that threaten our union? Well, look, it is, it is, there is the possibility that, it, that, it, that parochialism, if taken to an extreme, is, is, a, is, a, is, is undermining of or questioning of that national unity. It's not, I think, questioning of federalism. I mean, part of, part of federalism is recognising that, that independence, that autonomy, that diversity between the states, the differences between the states and their ability to articulate those differences, stand up for those differences. You may look at them and think, oh, they're not really all that different. This is just political posturing. But at least in theory, this is what federalism is designed to facilitate, I think. Don't you? That's right. And, you know, if we say they are different, they become different. Yeah. Difference is a matter of social construction. We can, we can make Victorians and Queenslanders even more different than they currently are, right? It's largely a matter of construction. But it would be remiss of me if I didn't ask you this before we end today's show. The Prime Minister gave a major speech in the Northern Territory over the weekend about the First Nations voice. Now, just before we end, what do we need to know about uh, the voice and what is the Prime Minister proposing? Yeah, so the Prime Minister Albanese gave a speech at the Gama Festival over the weekend uh, in the Northern Territory. And uh, as had been expected, as he'd promised before the election, the Prime Minister announced an intention to have a referendum to amend the constitution. The exact form of the new text is still to be finalised, but he gave a proposed text. It would be a new section at the end of the Constitution, section 129. It would do three things. It would establish a new body called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice in his draft. It would say that the voice can uh, make representations to Parliament and to the Executive Government on matters that are relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And it would give the Federal Parliament a legislative power to make laws about how this voice is composed, what its functions are, its powers and its procedures. So the idea is, and it's the idea that builds on the Uluru Statement from the heart, it builds on years of work by people all around the country, would be to enshrine this body in the constitution, thereby, as we've spoke about last week, making it hard to change, taking it up outside of everyday politics, but at the same time saying that its powers, what it does, exactly how it's composed, can be set by the federal parliament. So that can adapt from year to year, from decade to decade, without needing to change the constitution. So what we will be keeping an eye out for now is uh, a couple of things, I think. The detail of the amendment itself, as pr the prime minister's proposed it, is pretty clear. And there are other proposals around there, but that, that detail is pretty clear. There's also a lot of detail out there, and we'll put some in the show notes about what the voice might look like. But there will become political questions around whether the prime minister needs to make clearer what the parliament would do to compose, uh, legislate about the functions, the powers and the procedures of the voice. So that's something we need to keep an eye out for. Uh, and we'll put some of that detail in the show notes. The other thing we know, and we spoke about last week, the constitution is just really hard to change. And so building towards the referendum, there'll be a lot of uh, campaigning, there'll be a lot of discussion in political, constitutional and legal circles. One thing we know has often been key to the success of a referendum campaign 
is whether or not it has bipartisan support. So we'll be interested to see what the opposition leader has to say about The Voice. So I haven't done that justice, Joshua, but I hope that makes sense. But do you have any prediction to offer so that our listeners can say they have heard it first in this show? Well, I'm very optimistic about the the referendum, but I think there's a long way to go yet. So uh, I think uh, there'll be a need for people to understand these things, to explain them, to campaign on them, to talk them through. And we'll see what the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader and the Parliament and the people, of course, because we all have a say in the referendum, what the people have to say. What a good note to end on. Secondary rules will be back at the same time, same place next weekend. And next week, we'll be talking about the Leviathan and the Parliament. That's right. Today's program was produced not less than 100 miles from Sydney by Jack O'Brien and Tom Furin. Our thanks to the ANU Law School. If you'd like to know more, don't forget to check out those show notes for today's show. Our theme music is by Soul Shifters. If you like the show, please don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share it with a friend. We are Joshua Neo and Ryan Goss. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Ryan. See you all next week.